So I want to begin by asking you a question, which is, have you ever met anyone who's joined a cult? Does anyone know anyone who's joined a cult before? Well, if you don't know, we got one at the back. What about an online cult? That's right. It's a cult that is specifically just on the Internet. Well, I want to just quickly tell you about uh, one of the biggest online cults that are around today. And lots of people are very worried, not only because this is a cult that you can interact with on your laptop or your phone very easily, but it has a very unusual and some say dangerous practice. And the practice is called defooing. Defooing. All right, what does it mean to defoo? Well, defooing is actually an acronym, and foo stands for family of origin. So to defoo from your family of origin, or to defoo means to distance yourself, remove yourself away from your family. This is um, mothers, fathers, uh, siblings, aunties and uncles. Completely remove yourself from uh, their lives and never talk with them again. And so lots of people have rightfully thought, well, this is a bit of a dangerous idea, cutting yourself off from the family so you only stay with this online cult. But the leader of the cult says there's a good reason why every single person should defood. Here's what he says. He believes that all family relationships are voluntary and that no one has an obligation to uphold them. So in other words, you have no moral duty to stay with your family. It's just a voluntary relationship you have that you can exit out of from any time you wish. And the leader believes that in order to be a truly free person, you have to shed yourself free from all of these types of voluntary relationships. Now, this leader is perhaps one of the biggest people uh, who believes in this idea of defooing today, but he's not the first one to think of this. This is actually an idea that's about 300 years old. And it started with a philosopher from the Enlightenment era called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We'll just call him Rousseau. And Rousseau wanted to do a thought experiment. This was a time uh, where philosophy was very much in opposition to God. For hundreds of years, everyone viewed the world through the lens of the Bible. This is how the world was understood. But during the Enlightenment, there was this direct challenging of anything that came from the Bible. And so people were trying to figure out how the world works from a perspective that took God away. And Rousseau was one of these men. So he came up with a thought experiment to figure out the nature of humanity. What are, what are human people really like? Here was his thought experiment. He asked the question, what if you put a person alone in the forest? You just left them there and you took away all of their relationships, all their morals, their laws, their cultural customs and traditions. If you just put a man right there in a forest or a garden and left him to himself, what would happen? What would he do? Would he be happy and content? Would he be sad? What would life be like for this kind of lone wolf in the forest? Well, this is what Rousseau thought. He thought that this person who would be motivated by self-love would live happily and contently by themselves. He would just be more than happy to live in a forest 
and have no human contact for the rest of his life. And Rousseau believed this uh, for many reasons. Here he sums up his main idea in the opening of his book. Maybe you've heard this quote before. He wrote, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. So again, picture Rousseau's picturing a man left alone in the forest and he's completely free. He's by himself. He's not part of any culture or society. He has no relationships. He's completely free from any constraints. So what were these chains that Rousseau talked about? So the, the free man is this guy in the forest who just does his own thing. What does it look like in Rousseau's eyes for someone to be bound in chains? Well, Rousseau believed that it was relationships. Specifically, he believed it was the family and marriage. He said these were things which bound us and actually oppressed us and took away human freedom. To Rousseau, there was nothing ultimately real about the family or marriage. There was nothing that uh, was objectively true about a husband and wife being together. These were just simply voluntary contracts that people entered in. And like any contract, people could choose to go and come and leave whenever they wanted to. And so Rousseau was the first person to say that in order to be truly free, we have to get rid of all forms of human relationships. He didn't use the word, but in effect, he was also encouraging defooing. Separate from your family of origin. Separate from whoever. If you want to be a truly free person, you have to be free from all constraints in the world. But was Rousseau right? Well, as we said, Rousseau and all these other philosophers, they were looking at the world through a lens that was unbiblical. They were actually trying to find replacement ideas for what the Bible taught. So think back to Rousseau's original thought experiment. He said, if you put a guy in the forest and left him to himself, he'd be happy for the rest of his life. Now, what I find so interesting about his thought experiment is the very first story in the Bible is about God putting a man in a forest or a garden. And how does he cope for one day being alone in the garden? He struggles. He can't even go one day without feeling a bit sorry for himself. He looks all around and he sees all the animals have partners and he says, there's no one for me. Adam is not motivated by this kind of self-love or this selfishness. He feels selflessness. He wants to express his love to someone else. God made us, we're hardwired with a desire to love and to be loved. We're, we're wired in the very fiber of our being to crave and want to be in relationships with people. So Rousseau was way off in what he thought. He thought that we would be more than happy to not be in relationship. But the very opening pages of the Bible completely throw away his thought experiment and say, Humans are made and designed to be in relationship. We're made to be a part of a family. We're made to uh, desire close relationships like marriage. This is just how God built us. And I just want to briefly turn to Genesis 2. Let's just briefly read about how close and intimate this relationship was between Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. Adam barely goes a day being, being alone by himself. And then God creates Eve for him. I think God was intentional, wasn't he? 
in letting Adam experience a bit of loneliness before he gave the blessing of companionship. When Adam sees Eve, he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is far from some made-up contract, some arbitrary uh, social construct. This is something that God designed from the very beginning of the creation of our world. This was something that he intended for all of humanity to enjoy, closeness, relationship, intimacy with each other. Relationships aren't a contract. Unlike what Rousseau told, uh, said to the world, relationships aren't a contract. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, is this Rousseau guy really that influential today? Most relationships in the secular world today, in the culture we live in, are contractual. Many people go into relationships not for, them, not for uh, selfless reasons, but to get something themselves. And when they stop getting what they want out of the relationship, what do they do? Leave it. Exit it. Because it's just a contract that you can leave at any time. There's nothing real or uh, objective about it. So our culture is very much dominated by this contract theory that you can come and go, get whatever you want. Um, uh, your self-love is put first before anything else. But we see that with God, relationships aren't a contract Rather, they're a covenant. And so this morning, I briefly want to look at the story, uh, just one story of God making a covenant. And we're going to explore what are the differences between a contract and a covenant. And why is a covenant far better and far superior to a contract? So let's go to Genesis chapter 17, just a few pages over. And mind you... uh, We're going to be looking at specifically a covenant between a parent and child. Seeing as we're uh, celebrating a special covenant made today, I thought it would be fitting that we look at how the Bible talks about the covenant between a parent and a child. And this is God making a covenant with Abraham. So God's called Abraham out of his land and now God is establishing a covenant with him. So it says the following, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. So already we begin to see some of the unique attributes in a covenant. Things that make a covenant distinct from a contract. And the first is that in verse 2, notice God appears to Abraham and he simply says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He doesn't really ask Abraham, does he? He just comes to Abraham and he says, I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham, between you and your family. This is very different from a contract, isn't it? 
No one can get a contract, come up to you and just say, you're in this contract with me whether you like it or not. That's not how contracts work. Both parties have to consent. But here in this covenant, God simply comes straight to Abraham and he doesn't consult. He doesn't ask Abraham. He just says, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. So the question is, why does God have the right to initiate this covenant without first asking Abraham if he's interested? God just goes straight into it, says, Abraham, I am going to make a covenant with you. Well, it's very, very similar to a parent-child relationship, isn't it? When a husband and wife decide to have a child, even before that child is in the womb, they've already made a covenant commitment to that child. They're already dedicated to bringing up that child. And notice the child is never consulted whether or not they'd like to be in this covenant. The decision is made by the parents. They are the first initiators and they say to the child, before it's even born, we are going to be committed to you. We are making a covenant with you to be faithful. And the same is true for God and his relationship with us. Like a parent, he is the first initiator. He initiates the covenant and he doesn't need to ask us what we think because he is our parent and he is our father and we are his sons and daughters. So God is able to, he has the right to initiate that loving relationship with us. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Isn't that really how we could summarize what a covenant is? We We respond to the covenant that God has created with us because he first loved us. He was the one who initiated this relationship and covenant first. And so here, just like he does with us, with Abraham, like a parent with a child, God says, I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham, and I'm going to be committed to you. In verse 5, we get another parallel between a parent and child relationship. Abraham's uh, God says, no longer will you be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Now, once again, God doesn't ask Abraham for any input. He doesn't ask, do you like your new name? He just says, your name is going to be Abraham from now on. And again, you think, well, why does God have the right to do this? It's exactly the same as a parent and a child. When when a husband and wife have a child, they don't usually consult the little baby about what name they'd like. They give, the, they give that child the name. And why do they do that? The child belongs to them. The child is theirs. And so they are able to name it whatever they desire. Now, our modern mind can be tempted to read this and, go, and think that God is uh, maybe trying to show his authority off a bit. Maybe show that he's the top dog. He can just change your name whenever. But I don't think that's what God's trying to do here. I don't think God is trying to flex his muscles here and tell Abraham what's what. Think about all of the different things that we give names to. Whenever we give names to something, it's because we we care for it or we love it. We have some affection towards it. So children are an obvious example. But what about pets? Who has ever had a pet, let's say a pet cat, And never given them a name. Just refer to them as cat. Here cat. Whoever gets a pet dog and doesn't, you know, call it fluffy or something. No one just, no one refers to their dog as dog. Everyone gives the dog a name. Why do you give, why do we give pets names? There's some affection there. We we love it. We show it 
uh, affection. We even give names to things that aren't alive when we care for them. Does anyone have a name for their car? We give names to our cars, don't we? Or have you noticed every, every boat has a name on the side? Why do we name these things? We care for them. We love them. Often it can be really silly things. A, a really silly example. During big camp, it was boiling hot last year at big camp. And Sarval and I probably went one day without uh, in this heat and we went, nah, this, this is way too hot inside the tent. So we drove out and we bought ourselves a tiny little fan. And we absolutely loved this fan because it just gave us so much cool air and relief from the heat. And we decided to give the, the fan a little name. He was called the Phantom. Very punny, isn't it? Why did we give a silly name to a silly fan? We had some affection towards it. It did something nice for us. So even silly little things like that, whenever we feel a little bit, even the slightest bit of, of emotion or affection or love for something, we give it a name, even if it's something that isn't alive and breathing. We name things that we love. God's doing the same here. God's not trying to show off how big and awesome he is. He's, this is a demonstration of his love towards Abraham. By giving Abraham a name, he is not only showing himself to be a father to Abraham, but he's showing that he deeply cares and loves for him, loves him as well. And you'll notice later in the story, uh, Abram's wife Sarai is also given a new name, Sarah. So God is showing his love to both Abraham and Sarah in this instance. Did you know that God does the same for us as well? This is very interesting that a promise is made to those who overcome sin and temptation and trials. And this uh, promise that I'll read out for you is from Revelation 2.17. Where God makes this promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name, written which no one except him, which no one knows except him who receives it. So similar promises made to you and me. God is going to give a new name to those who overcome, to those who endure, who persevere in their walk of faith with God. And again, that is a symbol of God's love and affection towards us, his covenant loyalty to us as his father and us as his children. Let's continue reading uh, from Genesis 17 as God talks a bit more about his covenant with Abraham. Back to Genesis 17. Verse 6, God promises to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you will keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. So notice in verse 6 and 8, God makes some promises of blessing to Abraham. He says, I'm going to uh, make you exceedingly fruitful, so you're going to have many children. And from those children, nations and kings will come after you. 
He promises he's going to give them the land of Canaan. And he also says that he's going to be their God. He's going to be the God of Abraham and his family. So why does God promise these blessings to Abraham? Is he trying to incentivize him? Or is this just an outflow of the love that God has for Abraham? It's just because God is like a parent showing this immense love towards a child whom he loves. Now, in order for Abraham to receive these blessings, he does have to be obedient to God and his law. But what if Abraham was disobedient? If Abraham sometimes messed up and didn't always follow God's law, was God going to remove himself from the covenant? Not at all. God is going to continue to be faithful to the covenant. Think about it like this. When a child is disobedient to their parent, typically if they're a good parent, the first thought in their mind is, right, I'm going to get rid of this kid ASAP. You know, When a kid slips up, then the parent doesn't immediately think, how do I get rid of this kid as soon as possible? Sure, the, the child has, in a sense, violated the covenant. They haven't demonstrated love in return. But the thought in a good parent's mind is not, how do I get rid of this child immediately? How do I, how do I leave this covenant? Good parents don't look for excuses. They're, they're still committed to the child. Now, that child may temporarily lose some privileges for their disobedience. We could say temporarily lose some of those blessings of being a, a child to that parent. But even during that time that the parent is still being committed to the child. There, is no, there shouldn't be any fear in that child uh, that thinks, what, what if my parent's going to abandon me? The same is true for God. And it was true for Abraham. Abraham was called to lovingly respond to God and he would be blessed. But we know Abraham wasn't always perfect. We know for a fact we have records of him messing up pretty badly. And yet not once in those stories does God ever threaten Abraham with, you do the, you're on strike two, strike three, and I'm out of here. God continues to be faithful to him. I'm sure each of us have probably, surely at some point in our lives, thought that we've done something so offensive to God that he must have left this covenant relationship, that God has abandoned us, or that we can't come back to God. If our consciences are working, I, th- I think we've all experienced a time where we feel so remorseful and such regret for our sin that our mind starts to wander and we start to, th- we start to think things that really aren't true. We start to think, well, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe God isn't interested in me anymore. Or maybe I'm not worthy of God's grace, which is always ironic considering grace is an undeserved gift. No one's worthy of grace. That's the point of it. During those times where you might be feeling and experiencing that, where you're, where you're wrestling with these questions and having doubts, I want you to remember the covenant that God made with Abraham. Or remember, if you have uh, good parent role models, remember how your parents treated you during times where you know you messed up, times where you know you offended your parents. Your parents weren't looking for an excuse or a reason to ditch the covenant and get out. They still loved you in spite of that. And the same is true for God. When we sin, God doesn't look at us and think, that's it, I'm out of here. 
God looks at us and he feels compassion. He feels pity. He feels love. God's not thinking of how to push us to the side. He's thinking of how to bring us closer to him during those times. I always love to tell people when they're wrestling with doubts to not ever think that they can outsin God's grace. Jesus truly did die for every sin on the cross. None of them were left out. Isn't that interesting? We often think maybe that sin that I did was left out as though God, as though Jesus didn't cover all sin when he died. In Romans 8 verse 38 we, uh, Paul writes, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities or power, nor the present things or the things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, would be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you and me from the love that God has for us. Let's finish uh, reading the last part about Abraham and God making this covenant together. Genesis 17 and verse 8. God says, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, the land of Canaan. Here is a major difference between a contract and a covenant. When you sign a contract with someone, it's usually between two parties. That might be two individuals or two groups, two businesses. But no one ever signs a contract with the, the children or the descendants of another person. When you contract someone to build a house, you're not making a contract with the builder and the builder's kids. You're making it specifically with that person. Contracts just aren't useful for that. No one makes a contract with the children or descendants of someone. But a covenant is a commitment not only to the person standing in front of you that you can see, but to people who may not even be here yet. It's an ongoing commitment. Again, this is true for parents. When parents have a child, the initial covenant they make is to look and care after that child. But then that child is going to grow up and he's going to have children of his own. So in effect, those parents are also making a covenant commitment to the child that's going to come in the next generation. They're making a commitment to be grandparents, aren't they? And they're saying, I'm going to be faithful not only to you, but to your children after you. And this is exactly what God does to Abraham. He doesn't say, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And when you die and your children come on the scene, I'll make a separate covenant with them. And then they die. That covenant ends. I'll make another covenant. God doesn't do this. uh, He doesn't make a new covenant every generation with every new person. He makes one covenant. And he says, I'm going to invite all of you and all of your descendants into that covenant. And God, God was faithful to that promise that he made to Abraham. We read specifically in Galatians 3, 26, 29. And you might want to turn with me there. Galatians 3, 26, 29. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. Where God says, I'm going to be faithful to not only you, Abraham, but to all of your descendants and to your family as well. Uh, Galatians 3 verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Already there, there's this kinship between us and God, isn't there? We are his sons and daughters. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, here's the key, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed or Abraham's offspring, his descendant. And you are heirs according to the promise. So Paul says that covenant that God made with Abraham here in Genesis 17, it didn't just finish and evaporate one day. It went on to people like you and me who are now descendants of Abraham, not by blood, but through faith in Jesus. So isn't that radical to think that when God was making this promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, and he said, I'm going to be faithful to all of your descendants as well, Abraham. He was referring to you and to me. That's a promise that God made to each one of us, that he would be faithful to you and to me. When I look at all of these differences between a a contract and a covenant, I think I'm so lucky that God made a covenant with me and not a contract. If it were a contract, if it were a contract, God probably would have opted out and left already. That's what you can do with a contract. If the other person does not hold their end of the bargain, you get to leave whenever you want. But with a covenant, you have to remain faithful in spite of mistakes and failures. If we were in a contract with God, not only that, but each one of us would have to make our own individual contract. You make make contracts with individual parties. But because God made a covenant, there's only one covenant and all of us are in the same covenant together. That's why we're all part of God's family. I just want to share with you one quote about why family is the perfect illustration of God's covenant love for us. It reads, it is covenant love that provides the basis for family. Family is where you are loved unconditionally and where you can count on that love even when you least deserve it. We might say it's a place where you can find grace. So this morning we've seen for ourselves a beautiful example of what unconditional love in a family looks like. We've read about the covenant commitment between both a parent and child and also between God as our father and us as his children. And so my prayer for you this morning is that during times where you are, you are struggling with your faith, where you may doubt uh, your relationship with God, fall back on the fact that God said he would be faithful to his covenant with you, even in spite of your failures and mistakes. Never doubt that God is going to abandon or leave you because you're not good enough. God made a promise to you nearly 4,000 years ago that he would be loyal to Abraham's descendants, which you are. If I can close with the words of Paul in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God.